Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its newest publications. If you have any suggestions on authors that you would love to hear me speak with next, please feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Emily Anthes to talk about their new, or her new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness. Uh, Emily is a science journalist and author, and Emily, I'd like to thank you for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Uh, Before we begin, uh, could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a science journalist, and I came to that in a sort of roundabout way. I um, (laughs) was interested in going to med school and maybe doing research, and then realized that I liked learning about science and scientific ideas more than I liked actually doing it. Um, And I'd always like to write and my parents are journalists. So I sort of combined the two interests into science journalism. And I write about all sorts of things, but I tend to do a lot of stuff on health and well-being and medicine. Um, I wrote, my previous book was on animal biotechnology. And then I got interested in uh, buildings and and how they affect our health and well being and so that was sort of my foray into architecture. Uh, great, and that's uh, that's where I'd like to actually start. Uh, so the book was uh, very interesting, and you've kind of already touched upon it. But I was always, I'm, I'm sure people are curious, what kind of brought you into this, this kind of evidence based design of architecture? You you have very interesting case studies on schools, hospitals, and prisons. And usually, you know, people working on those buildings have the specialized knowledge they've been working on for 20 years, but then everyone outside of the field usually isn't as involved. So I was just a little curious on what kind of got you into observing all this evidence-based design architecture? Yeah, well, so I definitely, you know, and I should say off the bat, I'm a science journalist. I'm not an architect or designer or historian myself. I'm sure some listeners are probably better versed in those fields than I am. But because I write about science, I spend a lot of time reading the scientific literature and just studies that come out. And seven or eight years ago, I noticed, I guess, a small surge of studies coming out on what was being called the indoor microbiome. So microbiologists were going into buildings and they were collecting dust samples and then sequencing all the DNA they contained and publishing papers that said like, look at here the hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of species of microbes that are in our classrooms, in our hospitals, even in our homes. And so I sort of thought that that was a fascinating finding in its own right, you know, that there could be thousands of kinds of bacteria in my home that I never even saw. But it also, you know, as someone who is interested in science and, you know, you read all these studies about ecology and we think of landscapes and environments as things that happen outside. And this made me realize like how rich our indoor environments were and how much was going on in them that I had never appreciated. So that was sort of a turning point for me and a, you know, an aha moment. And I began to wonder like, well, what else 
is happening in my buildings that I don't know about or think about. And let me see what science has to say about that. So that was sort of the initial spark for the book. Uh, Great. I actually, uh, while reading it, I kept reading excerpts of the indoor biology to my wife. Uh And she has grown somewhat paranoid about our house now ever since the I know. I realize this has been bittersweet for me to talk to people about it because I think it's so cool and a lot of people think it's really creepy. Um, and we can talk about it in more detail, but I do, I don't want people to freak out about it because, Absolutely. you know, most of these things are totally benign and some of them are probably even good for us. So we can talk about that too, but uh, don't, don't worry too much about all the microbes <laughs> in your home. Yes. And so you, you touched upon uh, your, your interest in the medical field, and all the case studies were interesting, but one that was very interesting to me personally was your hospital research. Particularly, you know, you kind of, there was kind of the remark that a lot of architects, you know, they do their buildings, but sadly, they then have to move on to their other clients to kind of keep the lights on. But there's this whole other end of a building where the users are then using it. So the idea of the, particularly the case study you talked about, the surgery room, where they did a very detailed analysis of people using it and recording their thoughts. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that applied to the other kind of building types that you talked about as well? Yeah, I mean, post-occupancy research is really difficult and expensive and time consuming. (laughs) And, you know, that's partly because buildings are complex and partly because people are complex. And when you put those two together, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a very complex system. Um, (laughs) but I do think, you know, it's not necessarily for lack of interest. It's often for Mm -hmm. lack of time and resources. Um, I think one interesting thing that is happening is technology is really opening new possibilities for that kind of research and both sort of making it possible in general, but also making it affordable and scalable. You know, if you have motion sensors or, you know, heat detecting cameras, you can suddenly start to track how people move through a building in a systematic way that just wasn't possible before. So I think we are starting to see more of that and we will continue to see more of that thanks partly just to technology. Absolutely. And I know uh, it, it seems like it's the medical field does seem to be doing a little more mainly because there's the very the book made a very good case on the cost benefit of doing such research. Right. And so I, I would love to see other buildings doing that, although I guess maybe the case has to be made to them as well. I would assume that there's a same cost and user benefit for that kind of research. Yeah. I mean, and that's something I think about a lot in terms of offices. You know, you could imagine yeah. that there's certainly a case to be made that, you know, it's in companies' best interest to have employees that are healthier and take fewer sick days. Um, And I do wonder, you know, to tie this to current events, if that's something that people will start to appreciate more and and think about more now that, you know, we have this respiratory pandemic that spreads in buildings, if there might suddenly be an incentive to take those things more seriously now. Uh, Yeah, that actually is a a great segue into another point that was kind of brought up that in my mind is not brought up a lot is kind of, you know, sustainability is a big buzzword that's used, green design, but very rarely are the idea of making a building very active. Mm -hmm. And it's talked about in schools and offices, you mentioned, you know, and as soon as you had mentioned that elevators are always proudly displayed and people go out of their way to not use the stairs. And I am one of those people. And so that was a very interesting thing. I was wondering if you could touch on a little bit is the idea of designing spaces to become more active, because at least in my experience, that doesn't seem to be a common design trend. 
Yeah. So it's a field that's often called active design. And the idea mm-hmm. is that, you know, you're not forcing anyone to get exercise, but like, can we create buildings or spaces that just sort of subtly nudge people into being more active, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevator or going mm-hmm. for a walk at lunch or walking to the subway instead of driving to work. And, you know, that kind of movement has been designed out of our environments in lots of ways. I think a Absolutely. lot of 20th century design really focused on technology and efficiency. And, you know, mm-hmm. that had benefits and, you know, elevators made a lot of things possible that weren't possible before, but I think maybe has gone too far in that direction. You know, like I don't blame anyone for not taking the stairs when it's behind a heavy fire door and it kind of smells weird and it's got (laughs) flickering fluorescent lights. I mean, that's not an appealing environment. And so, you know, the idea is even if we just, you know, change the balance a little bit and create stairs that are pleasant to use and well lit Mm -hmm. and interesting architecturally, then people are a lot more likely to take them. Absolutely. And kind of the, I guess, on the other side of that coin, the one of the case studies that really interested me was the the schools that you talked about, particularly the one that was very proactive in getting kids moving and even having some food education, which I'll personally admit I had none when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, it, it, it talked about the power of design, but it also kind of had the sad reality that it, as much design as you put in, it is also up to the user's you had the case study regarding, you know, the very popular active school, but then sadly, when a different administration took over, a lot of that was kind of put to the, not in the forefront anymore, and there was a lot less active design utilization. Yeah, and and the way the researcher, or not, sorry, not the researchers, but one of the architects explained it to me, sort of really stuck with me and became a frame through which I looked at a lot of the other buildings that I talk about in the book, which is that, you know, she said we saw our job as creating this hardware and that we wanted to create hardware that encouraged people to be more active and that can be helpful, but to really make a big change and to have a big effect, you need to pair it with software that is complementary. So in the case of a school, it's, you know, like, are we still having bake sales or are we doing more active fundraisers or, you know, what is the school lunch menu? And so that's sort of the software and you can, make improvements through hardware alone, but that real change really requires hardware and software to work together. Um, and I thought that was an interesting way to to look at design and, and its I agree. role. I agree. Yeah. And uh, I know there was some, and I, that made that sound negative. There was a somewhat positive ending to that. It looked like they were starting to kind of turn around and return to the roots of that school's initial design. Yeah. I mean, so like, it's not, um, I don't think it's as simple as like, it's a failure. It's a success story. Some aspects have been very successful. And, you know, I should point out too, as the people I talked to did, you know, this is a rural school in a poor county where Mm -hmm. test scores are not great and lots of kids have lots of other problems at home. And so, you know, the designers also recognized, you know, like if they're really focusing hard on literacy this year, some of their like active design initiatives might fall by the wayside and that's okay. But like what we've Mm -hmm. done is we've created a structure or this hardware that sort of makes new things possible and they can, 
you know, adopt pieces of the cultural change as, as they're ready to. And so I think there's definitely been progress there, but, you know, it's not been like a, a silver bullet by any means. I, I agree. And you actually, there is a quote in the book that kind of touches upon that, that there is no environment that's good for everything. Right. It would make or for everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. And that uh, you kind of already touched upon it. Uh, you know, there you have the whole chapter dedicated to office space. And give, given how the global climate is right now, we'd be remiss not to talk about office design. Yeah. Every field, every building type, you know, they go through their design treads, but offices in particular, just every decade or so seems to go through a major switch that every office then interprets. And it's almost like we're at the beginning of a new one, as you know. It used to be, you know, getting co-shared spaces, uh, not cubicles anymore, but kind of the suites with multiple people. Mm-hmm. And now the reality is it's almost the complete opposite. We have a new design in place. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just, um, I didn't know where you were going with that, but some, well, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, and so you, you touched upon it, the idea that uh, active design is, it's easy to talk about in the medical field and schools, but there's a reality that most of us are spending our times in offices. It's probably more appropriate there than almost any other building type. Yeah. And there has been um, a focus on active design in offices too. It's, um, you know, something that some companies have, you know, to return to your earlier question, some companies, I think even insurance companies, if I'm remembering correctly, Blue Cross Blue Shield might have embraced some of these strategies because they've realized that it's in their best interest to have employees who are healthy. And so that's not just providing good health insurance and healthy food in the cafeteria. That's also about the design of your physical campus. It's, It's So another question I had while I was reading this as, as, as I've said multiple times, the case studies were very interesting. After the book's publication, have you had any further contact with these case studies or any other building types or observations since the book's been released? Um, let me, you know, I, so I'm am in touch with you know the people who either have designed or occupy some of these buildings, and I don't think there have been huge updates or changes other than the fact that, you know, everyone's now dealing with this pandemic. And so, (laughs) I mean, I think that's more the, you know, the book was completely finished, written before the pandemic happened. Like I wrapped it up right before. So it's not even explicitly mentioned in the book, but it definitely gives some new resonance to some of the things I discussed. So it's, it's less that the, the subjects or the case studies themselves have changed and more that like there are now new, there's some new perspective and new angles on what some of these designers have done. And they're, you know, newly significant for different reasons, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And so we've been talking about schools and offices, but uh, probably the biggest observable building type that's always trying to look for something to help is, uh, you know, prisons, Mm -hmm. the idea that, uh, you know, prison should be to reform, not to just simply house lawbreakers. And one thing that's always kind of observed is what is architecture's power and influence in that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people focus on the idea of policy reform or maybe providing programs or social activities in the prison. But uh, how about the actual design itself? Uh, could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, one thing I found really interesting and that I didn't realize was that there's a long history of 
attempts to reform prison through design and humanitarian yes. attempts um, to, you know, make prisons more humane and more rehabilitative. Um, but of course, you know, good intentions aren't enough. And that has not always had the intended effects. You know, I was blown away to discover that solitary confinement, which now I think most people consider to be a form of torture and is just one of the worst things you can do to a human being in terms of their mental mm -hmm. health actually originated as an attempt to sort of replace other quote unquote more cruel types of punishment, like either corporal punishment or other types of confinement. Um, you know, reformers thought, Hey, we'll give everyone their own individual cell. We'll give them their own individual exercise space. It'll be quiet. They'll have solitude. They'll be able to reflect and mm -hmm. repent and it will be this more humane form of punishment. And of course that um, is not quite how things worked out, but I think partly because of the recognition of how damaging solitary is, as well as, you know, growing calls for criminal justice reform and decarceration, there is more interest in looking again at prisons and jails and correctional facilities and thinking about what we can be doing different structurally. Um, and that's another really good example where, like, design isn't a silver bullet. Like, I don't <laughs> think, you know, locking up people in nicer cells isn't the answer. You know, I, I personally, I still think that like wide scale decarceration needs to happen, but at the same time, like prisons physically are awful and inhumane. And so like that is part of a larger package of reforms that need to happen. And it's also an interesting, you know, point to the fact that there is no silver bullet in terms of environmental design. Mm -hmm. Some of the things you just described, you know, solitary cells and separating people, bad in prisons, but in hospitals, there was a direct correlation to that increasing the health of the patient. Yeah, that, that's a good and, point. And, uh, you know, in private offices, right? Like absolutely. people want their own private offices. So, you know, it would make the architect's job easier, but there's just no single answer for that right. for any of these projects. Right. And then, so I would like to kind of touch on, we've sort of kind of been leaving the last chapter out. Uh, if you could, the one about the 3D printing, you know, on Mars or any kind mm -hmm. of space exploration. Yeah. So I end the book with sort of a look forward into what kinds of structures we might build in space. Um, and I think it's really interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's just sort of from a geeky perspective, like look <laughs> at all these sort of cool, weird things we might have, like inflatable domes and houses made of ice or houses and lava tubes. Um, but I mean, I think it's more than just sort of a fun thought experiment. And there are a couple of reasons why. I mean, I think one reason it's interesting to think about that is because, you know, it would be an opportunity to build a new society from scratch, you know, both in terms mm -hmm. of structure and culture. And so it's an opportunity to really think through, like, what do we value and what is working for us here on Earth and what is not? And like, what would we want to bring elsewhere? So it can sort of help us clarify our design priorities and our values. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, like on a more practical level, you know, space is a really extreme environment. And you know, it's not the same as Earth, but some of the challenges now have echoes here. You know, like our 
climate is becoming more unstable and extreme. We're dealing with more weather disasters, floods, wildfires, things like that. And we are also dealing with needing to be resilient and sustainable. And those are all even bigger problems in space. And so some of the solutions that scientists and designers are coming up with, you know, like waterless concrete or bioconcrete for use in space could actually be really useful here on Earth and solve some of the problems we're having here and help us live sort of more safely and sustainably where we are. Um, so, you know, it's it's not just a, a flight of fancy to think about these technologies that could have real applications now. That's a very interesting point. You know, personally, that's where my interests lie. You had mentioned thought experiment not too long ago when I was in school. Designing for a space colony was kind of a very fun design competition that was, you know, showed online, something for students to do. Mm-hmm. And without without sounding kind of as a high design idealist, there is somewhat of the reality that we are, We it seems like more people are taking it a little more seriously that someday we may have to deal with that. But it's an interesting point you bring up that even if you're not shooting for the stars literally and designing for a space colony, there's still things on Earth that can benefit from that kind of radical thought explanation kind of yeah i mean and it's not all tied to architecture but you know nasa is famous for its spin-off products i mean i I forget what the latest count is but tons of stuff that they've developed for you know architects on the iss or in the space shuttle are now have made their way into everyday products here so it's right you know not at all unprecedented absolutely and so that was a great way to look at that Thanks. Yeah. I mean, also it's just fun, but I do think that there's more than just fun there as well. Well, as I've said, the the book was very interesting. Uh, It's great to, you know, especially you had mentioned, you know, you're not, maybe you don't have an architectural background. You have more of a medical and journalist scientific background, but there is the reality of, you know, the stuff that architects are designing. There is some rigorous research that could be applied that can benefit it a hundred percent. And it's, Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the takeaways I think is, you know, obviously there's still a lot that can be researched, still a lot of questions that Mm -hmm. aren't answered, but like we now have the tools and we have the knowledge to build better, healthier environments. The question is, you know, do we have the political will and the cultural desire and the resources? And, you know, like, do we want to make that a priority? But, you know, I don't think we we can't say any longer that it's because we don't know how or we don't know the right approach. So um, that's sort of, again, another example of where, you know, design is important, but also the, the larger culture and society is really important as well. Uh, and that's a that's a great point. You t- you do talk about it in the book where there is the flip side of all this great technology and applications that are tracking its employees. Sadly, when it's put in the hands of maybe a smaller minded middle manager, it's starting to be used as more of a surveillance or a negative way in that. You talk about that regarding uh, office design in particular. Yeah. And it's something I've been thinking about again in terms of, I mean, it was something that was already starting to creep into particularly certain like blue collar jobs even before everything happened this year. You know, if you think about like tracking in Amazon warehouses or, you know, um, tracking, I think famously for like truckers and delivery people, you know, like can monitor their speeds and all that stuff. But I think 
so for obvious reasons, I think we will see more technology being used to sort of track and surveil employees because of concerns about the coronavirus. Like we're seeing, you know, companies install like sensors so they can figure out like who comes into contact with who so they can contact trace and, you know, temperature scans. And like, I totally get it. I understand why companies want to do that and why it seems reasonable right now. But I Mm -hmm. do worry a little bit that it's like cracking open this door that will be hard to close again. Like even after the threat of the pandemic has passed, like will we all have just sort of accepted this type of surveillance and the fact (laughs) that our employers have access to all this information about us and like we'll be able to turn that back or not, um, I think will be an open question and I'll be interested to see how that plays out. I agree. And when I read that, that was my first thought is sadly – People are going to overlook all the obvious benefits out of a, and rightfully so, but out of a paranoia of the negative potential for it. Yeah. I mean, so I think like the encouraging news was just even in the few years that I was working on this book, and I have another chapter on like smart home devices as well. So there's like a lot of technology in there, but I started to see. I think some more awareness and pushback on the part of consumers. I think as a whole, we became a lot more skeptical that technology was this unalloyed good, which I think is great. (laughs) Um, You know, I do wonder now like whether any, the pandemic and any of its accompanying tracking technology will be a setback in that regard or not. But I mean, I do think consumers were becoming more outspoken about what they were and weren't willing to put up with. Um, I agree. So we'll see. We'll see where that goes. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, I, as I said, the book is very interesting. Uh, I'm sure the audience would like to hear, though, you know, what are you working on next? What have you been doing since the book has been released? Yeah, well, so I, um, you know, I'm a freelance journalist. So in addition, you know, every few years I write a book, but I also write a lot of articles and you know, because this book about our indoor spaces is coming out at a time, both (laughs) when we are all spending a lot of time indoors. I mean, that's sort of one of the ironies of this pandemic is it is forcing us to spend a lot of time indoors, but indoors is also the most dangerous place to be (laughs) because (laughs) of the pandemic. So, you know, as I mentioned, I finished the book just before everything exploded. So I am working now, I'm writing a lot of shorter pieces that sort of explore some of these themes through the angle of the coronavirus. So like if you're spending all this time at home, what should we know about the air quality in our homes and how can we improve it? Or like, how should we be redesigning hospitals to reduce the spread of infectious diseases like the coronavirus? So taking a lot of these themes I've looked at in the book and sort of applying them directly to our our current scenario is um, it's been a good opportunity to do that. That sounds very interesting. While I was reading, all I could think is that, whether most likely unintentionally, you were a bit of ahead of the curve on what's going to be a very popular, I think, subject in research in the coming years. Yeah. I'm pretty sure everyone's going to be now interested quite a bit more in the indoor environment because of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, so I don't, I think and hope that's true. And I, you know, as I've said before, if I could snap my fingers and make the pandemic go away, I obviously <laughs> would. But yes. if like among one of the very small silver linings is I do think it is making people more aware about the power of the environment, the quality of their indoor environment, and making people pay a bit more attention to how and why it matters. Um, 
I mean, anecdotally, I've seen a lot more people talking and asking about that. So I think it could usher in some positive long-term changes. I agree. Uh, so uh, I, 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 the, the book is The Great Indoors by Emily Anthes. Uh, Emily, thank you again for talking with me today. Of course. It was great to be here. I, uh, I would recommend the book heartily. Uh, after I finished the first chapter, my wife and I took our shower head off and looked inside of it, actually. And? Uh, actually, surprisingly clean. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yes. And uh, thank you again for talking with me today. Of course. It was a pleasure. Uh, same here. Have a great day. Thanks. You too.